Shalom. This is Gary Duroshinsky, Congregational Leader of Beth Ariel Messianic Congregation. Thank you for downloading our message. We're delighted to make it available to you through the generous donations of our members and friends at Beth Ariel. We know that many are struggling financially because of the challenges facing our economy, and we do not want financial issues to keep anyone from enjoying our teachings. So please continue to listen in as often as you like. But if our presentations have been beneficial to you, and you are able to provide a financial donation to Beth Ariel, whether large or small, would you prayerfully consider sending a gift in support of our ministry? You can donate online through our website at bethariel.org. That is spelled B-E-T-H-A-R-I-E-L.org. Also, please remember to pray for us that we would be responsive to the Lord's guidance as we reach out to the lost sheep of the House of Israel in the greater Los Angeles area. Thank you, and I hope you enjoyed this message. If you have your uh, Bibles with you, turn with me to Exodus chapter 5. As you are turning there over the last few weeks, we've been focusing our attention on Moses, who is without a doubt Israel's greatest leader. And so the question is, how did he become such a man of God? Because Moses had his incredible challenges. Moses was not a very strong individual in and of himself. He was a man of great questioning of himself. We know this because when the Lord calls Moses over and over, five, six times, he even argues with the Lord that you have the wrong person. I am not eloquent of speech. I'm not one who is really feisty enough. I'm not from, as I would say, Jersey to stand in the face of Pharaoh and say, let my people go now. So how did Moses get transformed in the way that we see him get transformed? We noticed that when we looked at some of that very early Uh, experience in his life in Exodus chapter 2 and 3, we found that one of the things the Lord did with Moses, and no doubt does with all of us, is he had Moses face his failures square on to learn that without me, the Lord, you can do nothing. But then that wasn't the only thing God did with Moses was to have him face his failures. That can be destructive and discouraging. But rather, he had him face God himself. He had him encounter himself when the Lord appeared to Moses in a bush that was burning and was not being consumed. And in that particular encounter, and it just struck me that as he faces or encounters the Lord directly, it will be Moses who is the only prophet in Israel that God would say, with Moses I speak face to face, with all other prophets I speak in dreams and in visions. And so Moses had this encounter and The Lord's love for Moses and desire to use Moses resulted in him having this kind of personal engagement on a level that perhaps no other prophet had experienced. And what God taught Moses is in that encounter, while by looking at his failures, he learned without the Lord he could do nothing, but by encountering the Lord, he learned that with him he could do anything. 
with the Lord at his side, he could do this. And he could lead the people out of Egypt. And not just lead the people out of Egypt, but convey the very law of the Lord to his people. And not just convey the very law of the Lord to his people, but lead them for 40 years to bring them to the very gates of the promised land. Because with me, you could do anything, anything that I would call you to do. Yeshua makes very similar statements, if not almost exact statements, about the fact that without me, you can do nothing. But with me, you can do anything that I would call you to do. I have us turning to Exodus chapter 5. Because this section, actually it's a very long section, it takes us from chapter 5 to 11 or 12, is the 10 plagues. This is a section that's a nightmare for pastors to speak on because it's so long and it's so lengthy. You know, like what passage do you read and how do you sort of put all of this stuff together? But I think that when we look at the 10 plagues, Moses learns another lesson that makes him a great leader. And that is he learns the value of obedience. And that's what the 10 plagues are really all about. Many people look at the 10 plagues and they conclude God must be such a terrible God because look what he did with these destructive judgments to come upon, uh, upon the Egyptians. To look at the 10 plagues from that perspective, I think, is a superficial analysis of what's really going on with these plagues. So let me read to you some choice verses from this section, and then we'll step back and see what might be at the heart of what's going on here. In Exodus chapter 5, look at the first two verses. It says, Afterwards, Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and said, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. Let my people go so that they may hold a festival to me in the desert. And Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord? that I should obey him and let Israel go. I do not know the Lord, and I will not let Israel go. This is the reason for the plagues. God, in his grace, is answering Pharaoh's question. Who is the Lord? I'm going to show you. Why should I let Israel go? I'm going to show you. In such arrogance that he says, I will not let the children of Israel, the people of Israel to go, God is saying, you will learn of me and you will let my people go. It's an incredible response. In a way, this is a manifestation of the grace of God, right? God did not have to approach Pharaoh. He could have just brought destruction on the Egyptians and brought his people out without a word of explanation. But the Lord doesn't even do that. The Lord allows Pharaoh to ask, and the Lord obliges by providing him with the answer. Take a look at chapter 6, verses 1 to 8. These are sort of key passages, I think, in this section. It says in chapter 6, Then the Lord said to Moses, Now you will see what I will do to Pharaoh. Because of my mighty hand, he will let them go. Because of my mighty hand, he will drive them out of his country. That expression means to say he's going to make sure they leave. Right now he's saying, I'm not going to let them go. But what the Lord is saying is he's not only going to say, okay, you can go. He's going to push them out because he's going to want them 
to go. And so he says, God also said to Moses, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob as God Almighty, but by my name, the Lord, the sacred name of God. Notice all capital letters, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. He said, I did not make myself known to them in the same manner as I've made myself known to Moses when he told them of his name. He said, I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, where they lived as aliens. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the Israelites, whom the Egyptians are enslaving, and I have remembered my covenant. Therefore say to the the Israelites, I am the Lord. I will bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. I will free you from being slaves to them. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with mighty acts of judgment. I will take you as my own people and I will be your God. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God who brought you out from under the yoke excuse me, of the Egyptians. And I will bring you to the land I swore with uplifted hand to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you as a possession. I am the Lord. This section is the basis for the four cups of wine that are partaken of during the Passover Seder. And I love that expression, as I have sworn with uplifted hand. That's a way of reemphasizing God's promise and and the certainty of him delivering his people and delivering them from the hands of the Egyptians. Take a look at chapter 7, verses 1 to 6. Then the Lord said to Moses, See, I have made you like God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron will be your prophet. Is that not a remarkable statement? You know, to Pharaoh, you're going to be like I am to the world. (laughs) And what you are like to me, that's what your brother Aaron is going to be like to you. That is how I'm going to energize and empower and use you in the deliverance of the Jewish people from Egypt. I think that's just an incredible statement. He goes on to say, you are to say everything I command you, and your brother Aaron is to tell Pharaoh to let the Israelites go out of his country. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and though I multiply my miraculous signs and wonders in Egypt, he will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt, and with mighty acts of judgment, I will bring out my divisions, my people, the Israelites, and the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord whom I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring the Israelites out of it. Moses and Aaron did just as the Lord commanded. So the plagues are unleashed in response to the question, who is the Lord that I should obey him? The value of obedience is what the Lord is going to teach Pharaoh, but all of us. To know the Lord according to this passage, means two things. Check this out. In chapter 5, in verses 1 and 2, to know the Lord means to obey the Lord. Pharaoh knew that much. Look at verse 2. He says, who is the Lord that I should obey him and let Israel go? I don't know him. I will not let him go. To know the Lord does not just mean to know some things about the Lord. It doesn't even mean necessarily to worship the Lord. It means to obey the Lord, to follow him and to do his will. Indeed, to obey the Lord requires us to worship him. 
But it's more than just the external actions we do. It has to do with the internal transformation of our heart that results in individuals saying, I will obey you, Lord, wherever it is, whatever it is. I will go where you call me. I will serve you however you would have me serve. I will use my resources, my gifts, my natural talents, my time, my treasure, and all of those things to obey you, to serve you, and to do what you would call me to do. On the opposite side of the spectrum, when you read about Moses and Aaron in this section over and over again, when they go before Pharaoh, the text will say, and Moses obeyed the commandment of the Lord, and Moses did what God told him. In other words, Moses is an example of obedience while Pharaoh is this example of defiance. So what does it mean to know the Lord? It means first and foremost to obey him, to follow him, to do his will, and to serve him with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. But it means one other thing. If you look at chapter 9 in this section, you'll see that in, chapter, in this chapter, in verse 30, the text says, But I know that you and your officials, speaking of Pharaoh and the leaders in Egypt, still do not fear the Lord God. To know the Lord is to fear him, is to reverence him, is to honor him, and is to recognize just how almighty, almighty means. It means to say that we realize that he is supreme above all. And he is majestic, and he is powerful, and he is both a judge and a redeemer. And therefore, we are to be ones that do not take our relationship with the Lord for granted. We do not presume upon the grace and mercy and compassion of the Lord, because he's also a Lord that needs to be honored, respected, revered, dare I say it, feared. And this is what it means to know the Lord. It means to have a balanced view of God that doesn't just say, oh, because the Lord loves me, I can do what I want because he will forgive me. It is true, he will forgive you, but it is not true, you can do what you want. And there are always consequences for doing what you want. The plagues will teach us this, and I want to share something about that in a moment. But there are three reasons why we should obey the Lord that the plagues teach us. The first thing that the plagues teach us is the Lord is the one and only God in all the earth. He's the unique God in all the earth. He is the singular God in all the earth. In a way, Pharaoh is very much like our modern world. He has the same point of view that our modern Western civilization holds. He believes in many gods, and so does our society. Do you ever talk to people and you share with them about the love of Messiah? You need to embrace them. And what do they say? Well, that's good for you, but I believe, and you can fill in the blank, I believe in Buddha, and that's good for me. Or I believe in being a good person, and that's good for me. I'm happy for you, That's good for you, you would believe in Jesus, but it's good for me because I'm really happy about my secularism or my lack of faith or my uh, investment in whatever it might be. In that way, Pharaoh is a very modern individual. 
Because he believes, well, if you want to believe in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that's fine. Or if you want to emphasize Ra, or you want to believe in Eket, or you want to believe in Osiris, or you want to believe in any one of these other multitude of gods we have in Egypt, pick one. Because they're all pretty good. They all have their limitations, to be sure. But they all have their benefits. So whichever one you want, I'm happy with that. And that's sort of the attitude that is prevalent in our society, in our world. Sometimes it may even be prevalent in our own lives. I'm not saying that we should be arrogant about our faith. But I am saying that one of the things these plagues teach us is that that kind of philosophical perspective is wrong. It's wrong because the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is the supreme God of the universe. Now, what's really interesting when I say the supreme God, you may be saying, but wait a minute, there aren't any real gods. I mean, Osiris wasn't real. Ra wasn't real. He was a no-god. They were no-gods. Or Hathor. She was a no-goddess. And Paul makes it very clear that all of these gods are no-gods. They're false gods. What does it mean to be a false god? It means it's not a god. It claims to be something that it is not, or it is described as being something that it is in actuality not. But there's another side of this because the text is very clear that a battle is raging. And it would appear that behind these false gods and images, there may be some very real supernatural uh, elements as fallen angels or demons that are empowering some of this. We know that to be the case to some degree because when Moses comes before Pharaoh the first time and and Pharaoh doesn't believe in him, he throws down his staff and it becomes a snake. And then the magicians of Egypt do the same thing. Now, the text doesn't say it was by sleight of hand. They're called magicians because they were priests of these various gods. And is it possible for demonic forces and fallen angels to do such things? Absolutely it's possible. And therefore, it was very possible, probable, in my view, I would say it did happen, that through the energizing of supernatural fallen beings, these magicians of Egypt were able to have their staves turn into snakes as well. The difference, of course, was Moses' snake uh, uh, consumed the snakes of the, uh, the magicians because there's a battle raging. And part of the battle is a battle not just between Pharaoh and Moses, but between God and the false gods of Egypt. The false gods are really twofold. Some of them are satanic forces. The Egyptians also turned the water to blood, just like Moses was able to do. It would have been nice if they could have turned the the bloody water back to water, but they only added to the intensity of the plagues. And that wasn't too smart on their part. But no one said demonic forces were smart. They're just powerful, and many times they do very foolish things, such as rebel against God. I mean, it can't be anything more foolish than that. But the fact of the matter is, is that there's a battle raging between God and these evil spirits empowering these false gods, and there's a battle raging between God and the false ideas that individuals had about these Egyptian gods. And one of the things Pharaoh is to learn is that there is only one God who is the only God. So it's it's sort of funny to say the supreme God as if to suggest there are lesser gods. Well, the reality is he's the supreme God, he's the unique God, but there are no other gods in the truest sense of the word. 
But the text is clear that this comes up over and over again. Check this out. In chapter 6, verse 2, God says to Moses, I am the Lord. In chapter 7, verse 1, then the Lord said to Moses, see, I've made you like God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron will be your prophet. And then look at verse 5. He says, and the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. Look at chapter 7, verse 17. He, he says, this is what the Lord says. By this you will know that I am the Lord. Look at verse 19. The Lord said to Moses, tell Aaron, take your staff, stretch it out, over, out your hand over the waters of Egypt, over the streams, the canals, the, the ponds, and the reservoirs, and they will turn to blood. Oh, excuse, uh, they will, verse 19, they will turn to blood. And they, and in all the wood and buckets and stone jars, and Moses and Aaron did just as the Lord had commanded. He raised his staff, and thus everything is turned, even as uh, the Lord had said. And when you get down to verse uh, chapter uh, 8, verse 19, look at the magicians who had done some of these, um, these miracles or these things as well. They say, they say in verse 19, the magician said to Pharaoh, this is the finger of God. And then when you get down to verse 22, but on that day, I will deal differently with the land of Goshen where my people live, no swarms of flies, that I, the Lord, am in this land and I will make a distinction. And then he says, going down to chapter 9, verses 13 through 16, then the Lord said to Moses, get up early in the morning, confront Pharaoh, say to him, this is what the Lord says, the God of the Hebrews says, let my people go so that they worship me. Or this time I will send the full force of my plagues against you. I mean, it's already been six. There's even more to go, even a full force. How much worse can it get? So you may know that there is no one like me in all the earth. And when you get to chapter 10, verse 7, Pharaoh's official said to him, How long will this man be a snare to us? Let the people go so that they may worship the Lord their God. Now there's no question. He is the Lord. He is their God. Do you not yet realize that Egypt is ruined? I mean, even his own officials are recognizing the hand of God. This is the finger of God. Let them go already. And this is what God said he would do. Through the plagues, the Egyptians, as well as Israel, the Lord says, you will know, he says this to Moses, that I am the Lord. So one of the purposes of the the plagues was to make God known to his own people more clearly, but certainly to the Egyptians that they might know who he is. This is what Deuteronomy 6.4 is all about and why it is the premier verse in the scripture and why it is that we um, recite it each week. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. He is the one and only God. He is the unique God and he is the one alone that we serve and the one alone whom we follow. He's not only the supreme God in all the earth, but he is, uh, or the one and only God in all the earth, but he's also the supreme God. Thank you. (laughs) He is also the supreme God in all the earth. And so the reason I want to suggest this idea is because the plagues are not haphazard. They're very well planned and orchestrated. So check this out. First of all, the plagues are not haphazard on two counts. Not only is he the one and only God in all the earth, he's the only supreme God in all the earth. 
And this is why. The judgments and the plagues are really, and this is on two counts. First of all, the judgments are on the false gods of Egypt, right? He, each one of these plagues are not haphazard. Let me explain. First of all, when he turns the water into blood, the uh, judgment is on the god Osiris, who's a god of life in Egypt, but was also the god of the waters, particularly the goddess of the Nile. The second plague was a god was a judgment on was a judgment of frogs. And the frogs was represented by the god Eket. And that's my favorite god of the Egyptians because Eket sounds just like a frog, right? Eket. So Eket was the god of the frogs. And then you had the gnats and flies. And the gods of the gnats and flies was Utachit. And then you had the god of the cattle, which he strikes with a disease. And the Egyptians worshipped Apis, who was the representative of the bulls. He was a bull god. And Hathor. Hathor is a very interesting goddess because she has the body of a woman and the head of a cow, you know. So she is the goddess of the cattle. And then the boils that struck humanity was a judgment on the god Shmet, who was the god of healing and restoration. And when the Lord brought hail, it was a judgment on the crops because the hail destroyed the crops and Set was the goddess God who protected the crops. And then he had the locusts come through to devour even more of the crops and the God of the locusts was Isis. And then he had the sun turned to darkness and the darkness was represented by the God Ra. And the death of the firstborn was a judgment on Pharaoh because the firstborn of the kings of Egypt became the kings of Egypt, the next Pharaoh in line. And Pharaohs were seen as incarnations of the god Ra and Re and Atum and a number of these other Egyptian gods. Each one of these plagues was designed to demonstrate that God is supreme and that the gods of Egypt are no gods. They were not just haphazard means of bringing um, destruction on the Egyptians. They were purposeful so that the very gods they worshipped were transformed into taskmasters to afflict the Egyptians with heavy bondage in the same way that they had afflicted the Israelites. But that's not all. Not only were these judgments uh, meant to reveal God is the supreme God. But the plagues are, in effect, the undoing of creation in a localized area in Egypt. Now, think about this. The plagues hit four major areas. The first plagues hit the water in turning the blood to uh, the, the water, to blood, and the frogs coming out of the Nile. The second series, plagues four, five, was it one, two, three, four, five, and six, was a judgment on the land as 
you had the flies and the gnats and the cattle and the boils on, on, the, on the people. And then when you see the hail, the locusts, and the darkness, it's interesting, Moses is told, or Aaron is told, to take dust and to throw it up into the sky. And that is what brought the uh, locusts. And then he is told, or the hail, and then a wind comes from the sky, and it blows in the locusts. And then the Lord turns the sky to darkness. It's an attack on the water, the land, and then on the sky. When you read the Genesis, and then the last plague prior to the death of the firstborn is darkness that hits the land of Egypt. And what follows then is a judgment on Pharaoh himself, particularly because he was seen as a false god. Now take a look at Genesis chapter 1. Because in Genesis chapter 1 it says, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And look what God does. He starts separating. He calls light out of darkness. He then starts separating the waters to create the sky. And then he brings out the land. And then he brings the animals and everything into the land or into the sky. And then he brings humanity into reality. What's happening in Egypt is when we disobey God, we unleash chaos is really what this is about. Because of Pharaoh's unwillingness to obey God, it undoes or undoes the world in Egypt. It's localized. But everything is thrown into chaos. Now you've got darkness not serving its proper purpose. Now you have animals like or insects not serving its proper purpose. Now you have the waterways not serving its proper pa- purpose. They become means of destruction rather than means of order. That's what the creation is about. God organizes all the things that he made. And there's an orderliness to it. There's a fitting together of the parts. Apologists refer to this as the teleological argument for the existence of God. There's order in creation. But what you see in Egypt with the plagues is total chaos and disorder. And the question is why? And the reason is, or the answer is, because obedience is important. When you disobey God, you unleash the forces of chaos. It happens in our own lives. When you don't take care of your body, if you don't eat a right diet, the natural consequences is disorder and your body breaks down. If you don't have a right idea of work, Shabbat is a day of rest. If you're a workaholic and you disobey God in making sure that you rest, You unleash chaos, and it's no wonder that we experience the stress and the anxiety and the frustrations, and our families disintegrate, and all of our uh, connections begin to uh, just fall apart. In a way, and I remember when I was in Bible college, there was a, uh, as we were going through the plagues, I never made much of this, but thinking about this, this began to make more sense to me. There were liberal scholars, of course, who denied the miraculous nature of the plagues, right? So they want to explain, is there a natural explanation? 
And thinking of the natural explanation made me think of this point, you know. Uh, and I, while I believe all this is miraculous, but think about this. If the, water were, were, if the waterways turned to blood, what's the natural consequence? The things in the water died. Of course, the frogs are going to escape. So they head on to the land. And when the frogs get on the land and they die, well, of course, they become putrid and the smell and the stench. And that draws flies and gnats and all kinds of things, right? And when the crops are destroyed, it brings in all kinds of dust bowl effects. And, and you know, you can't go too far with this, but you get what I'm saying. There are natural consequences that occur. In other words, God doesn't have to strike us because we do something wrong. The natural consequences of wrongdoing are striking enough. If we are argumentative and we're individuals who fail to, let's say, forgive, God doesn't have to strike us with anything. What happens? We become a bitter people. We become a people that are callous towards others. Uh, It may even serve us to become um, disengaged from other people for fear that, you know, similar things might happen. The point I'm just trying to make is that the plagues reveal a chaotic country, and the result of chaos is destructive in its way. The plagues are meant to teach us God's commandments are good for us. God's desires are good for us. Paul says this, the law is holy, just, and good. That means it's beneficial for us. They're good things. It's good to obey the Lord. He wants us to be happy. He wants our lives to be in order. He wants our lives to make sense and to be meaningful and to be purposeful. And that's why he gives us the commandments that he gives. It's not to hold us down. It's not meant to be legalistic, although people transform them into such things. The law is holy, just, and good. It is meant to keep things in order, and principally that we are in order with God because there is value in obedience. And if Pharaoh had just let the people go, there would have been no chaos or destruction. But in failing to obey God, we unleash chaoses, not only in our world, but in our own lives as well. The last point that I'd like to say is not only do the plagues reveal that the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is the only true God. It not only reveals he's the only true God, it also reveals he's the supreme God. There are no other gods, and to fail to obey him will unleash chaos in our world. But he's also the only redeeming God in all the earth. Now, check out these verses. I do want you to see these, because these are powerful verses here. And, you know, I don't know how many times I've read through this, but I've never really taught on it or preached on it. And so it was kind of neat to discover some things that sort of you just go by. He's the only redeeming God. And look how it comes out in, of all things, the 10 plagues. We would think it's, a, it's, a, it's an, a, an occurrence, a record of God's judgment. It is that. But it's a record of the judgment of God that's meant to make him known, that we would see he is the Lord. And as the Lord, he's the only Lord. He's the supreme Lord but he's also a redeeming Lord, a loving Lord. So look at this. In chapter 6, for example, he says to uh, 
He says to Moses, say to the Israelites, I am the Lord. I will bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. Is that not a great phrase? I'd love the Lord to say to me, Gary, I'm going to bring you out from the yoke of all your troubles. You know, I mean, isn't that a wonderful thing to have God say? And he says that here. I will bring you out from under the yoke. I will free you from slavery. You know, some people have very serious and other maybe more less so serious addictions. Wouldn't it be great to be free from our taskmasters? That's what the plagues are reminding us of. It says, I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with mighty acts. Wouldn't it be great? God, you know, it's not just cerebral. I asked Jesus into my life and therefore I know I'm redeemed. But isn't it wonderful when you sense the mighty hand of God and you sense that in the process it was a mighty act, a work of miraculous nature that saved you? I was with Ron the other day and we were, yesterday and we were talking and I shared my testimony. And sometimes, you know, if you don't share your testimony too often, you forget the miraculous power of God that invaded my life like he invaded the lives of Israel in Egypt and brought them out. And that's what we need to experience. He says, I will take you as my own people. Holy crow, you know? We belong to him. And he says, and I will be your God. You can call me Father. <laughs> you can call me my God. I mean, isn't that nuts? It's nuts that he would do that. And this is in the context of the plagues. And he says, then you will know that I am the Lord your God. But it's not only there. This amazed me. Take a look at Acts, uh, Exodus chapter 8. You know, the grace of God, even in the midst of the plagues, impacts Pharaoh himself. Look at chapter 8. Now, maybe he's cynical, maybe not, but I want to show you something I've never seen before. But in Exodus chapter 8, Pharaoh summons Moses. He says, pray to the Lord to take the frogs away from me and my people. And Moses said, I leave to you the honor of setting the time for me to pray for you and your officials. Is that, what, what? You know, if it was me, I'd say, well, maybe this time next year. Hang in there, you know. But he says, I'll leave to you. When would you like it, Doug? You know? And look at Pharaoh, verse 9 to 10, tomorrow. Why didn't he say like now? You know, he says tomorrow. It will be as you say that you will know there's no one like the Lord. He could pray to Osiris, Ra, or any of these gods of Egypt. They're not going to do anything for you because they had no reality to themselves. And the demons that may have energized them behind them, people think that they're on their side when they sort of bow before them. They're only out for their destruction as well. It's only the Lord that would spare Pharaoh and answer his request. Tomorrow, that, at that time, the Lord removed the frogs. Is that crazy? Think of this. Look at chapter, look at verses 28 and 29. Moses said that the sacrifices we offer the Lord our God would be detestable to the Egyptians if we offer sacrifice. We must take a three-day journey as he commanded us. 
Pharaoh says, I will let you go to offer the sacrifices. Look at this, but you must not go very far. Now pray for me. What is going on? Look at verse 31. Then Moses left Pharaoh and prayed to the Lord, and the Lord did what Moses asked. And what Moses asked was what Pharaoh asked Moses to ask God. And in verse 31, by this time also, Pharaoh hardened his heart. He wouldn't let his people go. Now look at chapter 12. Chapter 12 is an interesting passage because that's about the Passover. Look at chapter 12, verse 32. Finally, Pharaoh says, go, (laughs) leave. During the night, Pharaoh summoned Moses and he said, up, Leave my people, you and the Israelites. Go worship the Lord as you've requested. Take your flocks and your herds as you have said and go. And also bless me. (laughs) Bless me. It's amazing how God is a redeeming God. He's a saving God. And I'm not saying he saved Pharaoh here. But you have to be impressed that this enemy of Israel and God is moved to call upon him to pray. And take a look at Exodus chapter 8, verse 19. It's not just Pharaoh. Because it says, the magician said to Pharaoh, this is the finger of God. And if you look at chapter 10, verse 7, Pharaoh said, how long will this man be a snare? Let the people go that they would worship their God. And look at chapter 8, verse 18. As... Uh, excuse me, chapter 8, verse 18. As God gets ready to unleash the, uh, not chapter 8, uh, on the, I think it's the hail. Yes, when he gets ready to unleash the seventh plague, look what God does. He says in verse 16 of chapter 9, I have raised you up for this very purpose that I may show you my power, that my name might be proclaimed. You still set yourself against my people, will not let them go. Tomorrow at this time, God says, I will send the worst hailstorm that has ever fallen on Egypt. From that day it was founded to now. Now look at this, verse 19. Give an order now to bring your livestock and everything you have in the field to a place of shelter. Who brings judgment and then says, you better protect yourself. You know, if you want the judgment to hit hard, you don't tell them, look, go into some shelter so you don't get hurt. This reminds me of the Israelis, right? We're going to go bomb the place. So listen, make sure you take some shelter so that you're not hurt. That's what God is telling the Egyptians. I'm going to send this thing. You're not going to believe what it's like because the hail will fall on every man. And look what it says. Those officials of Pharaoh who feared the word of the Lord hurried to bring their slaves and their livestock inside. But those who ignored the word of the Lord let their slaves and livestock in the field. Some of the, some of the Egyptians are starting to turn as well. The whole point is that the plagues were meant to turn the hearts of the people of Egypt as well as to encourage the Israelites. And look at this final thing. In chapter 8, verse 27. I guess I wrote this wrong. (laughs) But in two places, Pharaoh says, I have sinned. 
If you look at chapter 10, verse 16, Pharaoh quickly summoned Moses, I have sinned against the Lord your God and against you. Forgive my sin once more. Pray to the Lord your God to take this deadly plague away from me. And there's one other place where he confesses his sin and asks to be forgiven. The Lord brought the plagues not only to destroy, in a way they brought destruction because disobedience unleashes chaos. But he desired their salvation. Now let me say one last thing, Scott, if you come. One last thing. I find it interesting that the time at which Messiah takes on the sin of the world from 12 to 3 is darkness over the land. In fact, I read about this. In Matthew chapter 27, it says, from the sixth hour until the ninth hour, darkness came over the land. Mark, it says, at the sixth hour, darkness came over the whole land. In Luke, it says, it was now but the sixth hour, darkness came over the whole land, for the sun stopped shining. The ninth plague was darkness. And the tenth plague was the death of the firstborn. The plagues reveal the chaotic mess that disobedience brings. But the death of the Messiah brings an end to that chaos. Out of the darkness of his death that is visible, just as this darkness was to the Israelites, the firstborn of God dies. The first fruits of those who sleep, Paul says in 1 Corinthians. The firstborn of all creation, it says in Colossians. Just as the tenth plague of the firstborn dying follows the darkness, so it is the firstborn, the Messiah of Israel, who dies out of the darkness. In the Egyptian plagues, it brought an end to their lives. In the Messiah's death, It brings life out of darkness. It's sort of like a recreation, you know, where the plagues were the chaos of disobedience. The Messiah's obedience unto death brings life and salvation and redemption and order back to our world. That's what God is doing in your life if you know Messiah. He is reordering you. He's recreating you. He's conforming you into the image of his son. And one day he will return and there will be a new heaven and a new earth. Because out of the darkness of the cross, order can one day come again. The invitation to you If you don't know Messiah, if you've never invited him into your life, the invitation is to come out of the darkness and the chaos and the slavery of your life and mine and to come into the light and redemption and salvation of our Messiah. Thank you for listening to our message. We hope that it serves to encourage you in your walk with the Lord and your service to him. Do remember us in your prayers. And if you are able to provide a financial donation to Beth Ariel, whether large or small, would you prayerfully consider sending a gift in support of our ministry? You can donate online through our website at BethAriel.org. That is spelled B 
B-E-T-H-A-R-I-E-L.org. Thank you again, and may our Heavenly Father richly bless you as you continue to follow Him. Shalom, shalom.